Hey, my friend. So the clock has been set. Time is now ticking. Have you ever wondered why during labor, we see some of these medical interventions happening or being introduced, even sometimes when things are going relatively well? There's a reason why this is, and we're going to be chatting all about that today because it's about time. Believe it or not, time is a huge factor when it comes to pregnancy and birth. And in some cases, it happens to get more intense as labor progresses. Life in general is all about time. It's ever present. It's all about how we spend it, how everything is beautiful in its own timing. And when it comes to childbirth, time is something that is measured heavily in certain environments. And that can be pretty intimidating and can hinder the psychological process of birth. So today we will get into the concept of time, how it's used today in childbirth, and how to make time work for us and not against us. But before we get inside this week's episode, I want to make mention that I'm currently offering a nine-week one-on-one private childbirth education course that will give you a well-rounded educational experience that will help you and your birth partner for pregnancy, childbirth, and postpartum. With some of the things we will be talking about today, you will be able to get more in-depth training that is hands-on and fits your needs and your desires for the type of birth experience you are looking for. Click the link in the description of this episode to book this one-on-one coaching session today. I cannot wait to see you there and to walk alongside of you in this amazing journey. Okay, mom, let's head inside and get started. Hey mama, welcome to Simplify Birth and Motherhood. I am Amanda. I am a wife and mom of four. I have had a hospital birth, unexpected C-section, a few home births, and now I am a birth advocate, childbirth educator, and your cheerleader in the toughest hood of them all, motherhood. Do you wish you knew what options were available to you when becoming a new mom or adding more to the mix? Are you ready to nurture and build up your mom gut so you can be more confident, educated, and bold? In this podcast, you will begin to understand, find support, and turn knowledge into power through education and resources for pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum, and for the early years of motherhood. If you are ready to get clarity to empower your birth and motherhood journey, then throw up your unbrushed hair, hike up your high-waisted pants, because sister, (laughs) I know you are wearing them. Put the baby in the ergo, and let's start feeding our God-given mom guts. See you inside. Okay, come on in, because today we are talking about the clock. Not like a literal clock, but we are talking about time that is running, because, I mean, the clock is always running (laughs) in life. But, I mean, we're going to talk about time. Give me time, or another great hit. If I can turn back time, I mean, there's just so many literal jams that I can sing right about now, but you're probably like, please don't. (laughs) But okay, so time, when we talk about time, especially when it comes to pregnancy, childbirth, all those things, especially when it comes to postpartum, to me, it's interesting because it's like time we know is always present in our lives. I mean, if you live in my house, you're always reminded of the time, not because I'm reminding you, but because my kids, my kids are always telling me what time it is. I mean, it's guys, it's gotten so bad that I've had to actually block out clocks to where my kids can't read the time. I'm very thankful that they know what time it is, but at the same time, they're just telling me the time constantly. 
And it's not like, oh, it's three o'clock, mom, we have to do this. It's not because we have to go anywhere or do anything or we have a very rigid and strict schedule. It's just they want to tell me the time. And it's, I'm literally not even kidding. It's like, oh, it's two o'clock. It's 2.01. It's 2.10, mom. It's 2. It's 2.30. It's 2.50. I mean, just it's always constant and present in my home. So I'm constantly being reminded of the time. So on a regular basis, we are always looking at the clock. What time is it? Do I have time to do this? Do I have time to do that? Or it's time to go ahead and go to this appointment. We're constantly being reminded of time. But that's really no different when it comes to pregnancy. We talked about that with due dates, but it also is no different when we are actually in childbirth. And in fact, it almost seems like time is more of a pressure element during labor than anything else. And so when we talk about time and where it comes from, like, why are we doing this to moms? Why is this even a thing? Why are they only letting moms go so far in labor or even not given a chance, or even not given the opportunity to go a little bit longer, when that could be essentially super beneficial. And when we think about time, it becomes this pressure in our minds to be able to perform a certain way, or to be able to do things in a certain period of time. I mean, it has always become this pressure element when it comes to pregnancy and childbirth. And so today we're gonna talk about that. And time, essentially, is based off of, in some environments, the Friedman curve. So this is where it all comes from. The Friedman curve is a graph that shows research that was done in the 50s by a young obstetrician from New York, Emanuel Friedman. I mean, side note, I'm not a super feminist. I'm not even a feminist. I would not call myself a feminist at all. But I think it's kind of ironic that some of the things why we do what we do in labor is because of something that men have created or a certain research or study to bring more structure to birth or to control more birth were really rooted in men which is like so funny to me because it's like you'll never know like you'll never know man you know because it's like they really will never know <laughs> and who knows they don't know what women's bodies are going through so it's just an interesting concept i'm not a feminist but just kind of ironic in that sense so this study had the purpose of studying the length of labor, in essence, the time in which dilation would happen. His findings were put on a graph and it calculated that the average time a woman would dilate, and according to his findings, the amount of time of women would dilate would be about one centimeter per hour. Even just hearing that is like ridiculous <laughs> because that doesn't even happen even with women who've had babies or you know it's very rare for women to dilate that fast um yeah so even that in its sense is weird <laughs> and just kind of interesting however the total time varied so it took about eight to six hours to dilate from zero to four centimeters the average dilation from four centimeters to 10 centimeters was about five hours and this is when they considered you to be in active labor around four centimeters, whereas today it's six centimeters and four centimeters is when things start to really pick up. So it's almost like you get over this hump. So once you get over this hump of four centimeters, you kind of start hanging around five centimeters. And then once you hit six, things really start to pick up, which I don't really blame them why they think that six centimeters is considered active labor. Because really, it's where a lot of the hard work gets put in, and this is where things really start to ramp up. And so I don't blame them for that. But back then, active labor was, you were considered active labor at four centimeters, where today it's different. But at nine centimeters, there was a slowing down until about 
10 centimeters, therefore leaving an average of one hour for pushing. <laughs> I mean, if you're pushing within one hour, first time mom, second time mom, I mean, that's still a pretty good time, but not everybody pushes for that long. It wasn't until about the 70s is when they started to apply this method and that it actually put time limits on moms. And if labor lasted more than 12 hours, they were considered to be a failure to progress or the medical term is labor dissociate scenario, which in turn has only increased the C-section rate in general. I mean, how many of us, I mean, this is why I had a C-section was because I had a failure to progress. And how many of us who are experienced mom or how many of us know somebody who's had a c-section based off of that i mean it's pretty common but with the increase of c-sections we are also not seeing the decreases in cerebral palsy or any brain damage or neurological damage due to lack of oxygen we're not seeing improvements in those areas and we talked a lot about that during our cesarean session together but with these increased cesareans we're seeing that first-time moms make up about 30 percent of those and it's because of the failure to progress diagnosis. But the error with this study and why we are still seeing it be an error, even though we're still using it for some reason, the error with this study is that it's unknown if Pitocin was used in the study, which can affect the pace of labor. It really can. I mean, it can speed things up. It can make things more intense and <laughs> those types of things. But it also, too, with the Pitocin, was used on good candidates. We know with Pitocin in general, and we will talk about this in the future for sure, because Pitocin is used so commonly today that it's almost like on autopilot for us in labor in certain situations. And so with Pitocin, you have to be a good candidate. This is why they do the cervical softening agents like Cervidil. This is why they do those things because if you are not, they want to get you to a point where you are because if you're not a good candidate or your cervix is not favorable, then you do have the chance of the induction failing, which also puts another kind of dock in your, you know, in your tally marks of, okay, we're moving closer and closer to a cesarean. So they essentially do want it to work. I mean, that's why we're going in is to make it work and make these things be more um, helpful to us. But you have to be a good candidate in order for the induction to be successful. And that includes a uh, softening of the cervix. If you're not there, they do stuff to be able to get you there. Also with this, some of the error is that if it was used at the point during labor, when was it administered to the test subject? So when it comes to Pitocin, sometimes we see Pitocin being used in the beginning of labor to kind of get things started. Sometimes we see it in the middle of labor because things have kind of fizzled out. So they want to go ahead and start using it or you're, they want to see more dilation happen in a certain period of time. Again, time. But then sometimes they use a Pitocin right after they deliver the baby to help with postpartum hemorrhaging and things like that. So there was nothing in the study showing if Pitocin was used or any type of labor inducement was used at all and when. It also didn't show how many of the test subjects went into labor on their own, meaning spontaneously, or were induced. So those things are not known with this type of study. And it also focused on first-time moms between the ages of 13 and 42. 13 is relatively young to have a baby, but apparently during this time this was happening. I mean, probably not as common, but that's what they, st they showed. These were the ages in which they were doing this study. 
It also showed about 50% or more of women had forceps used on them, which means these are tools that help get baby out, down, and out. A few of them had cesareans, a few of them had breech twin births, stillbirths, and newborn deaths. And the weight of babies ranged about 4 to 10 pounds, but were most within normal range. And guess what that normal range was, guys? 5 to 8 pounds. That's a normal range where now they considered baby who is, let's say, 8 pounds to be a big baby. And anything over 8 pounds is like scary. (laughs) So this was within the average. Where we flash today, we're seeing some of these many other factors that need to be considered when it comes to birth and time. And really what we're seeing is on average, first-time moms are laboring about 20 hours. I mean, that's still really good. It's very common for first-time moms to go over this 12-hour mark. And experienced moms, too, are actually having babies averaging between about 14 to 16 hours but sometimes, majority of the times, less than that, less than 12 hours. So you're talking like eight hours, nine hours, sometimes four hours, sometimes days. Sometimes we see experienced moms and first-time moms being considered from start to finish labor over days. Sometimes it takes days for moms to get to five centimeters or to four centimeters because they are having this really long labor process or how much of us experienced moms go in to our provider, our midwife, our OB, and then we get checked and then are finding out, oh, you're about two centimeters dilated. We didn't even know that we were two centimeters dilated. (laughs) I mean, that happens. So is this Friedman curve still used today? And what does that mean for us? Well, yes and no. Yes, majority of the time, And you're going to find this more in the hospital setting, whether or not it is made known. But what is made known is that the moment that you step into the hospital, that clock has now been set for you. And you will probably know how your doctor feels about how long, quote, time they will let you go before they start resorting to other measures. And you'll know that even in your pre-preparation, before you even go into labor, how long they will let you go past your due date. This is all based on time. And so you'll know what the stances are with your particular doctor. But if you happen to go into labor and your doctor is either not on call or not available, then chances are you'll probably get another doctor who is on call, who is available, who is willing to take you on that has a totally different view than what your actual doctor does. And whether or not your doctor is there or there's another doctor there, they won't even come in until you're about to push. I mean, we hear oftentimes some LD nurses who are like, don't try to push, don't push, don't push. We're waiting for a doctor. And it's like, you can't tell me not to push. But they don't necessarily show up until baby is ready to be born. So who is taking care of you the entire time? Who's there doing that? The LD staff. That's who's there. They are there to take care of you. And they too are within the certain bounds and certain policies and standards and procedures of time, of what the institution or the hospital that you're at, you are still within that time. So it doesn't matter if your doctor has a little bit more of a view of, yeah, we'll let you go however long, or yes, we'll only let you go to this point. It doesn't matter. The clock is still set and everybody is within that it is in that bounds within those bounds and that's the thing 
that they are functioning as a business and they're there to do a job and that job is structured around hospital business. And a 2002-2008 study showed that over 60,000 women who participated in the study actually had slow labors rather than what the Friedman curve initially predicted. So if we're seeing these trends happening, why are we still using this? Why is this still a thing? And we are now seeing six centimeters as the new active labor. And hospitals are not encouraging mothers to come in anytime before four centimeters. And so this is, if this is all true, this means that moms who have hung around a five centimeter period of time, which is also very common, were rushed off into surgery due to lack of failure to progress when really six centimeters is considered active labor. I hope that makes sense because if we are seeing this trend where they are still using this graph or this curve still, and they're still sticking to it, but then things have changed, there's a lot of contributing factors that have changed from then and based off trends and based off of women who, how their age, when they're having, so many things are contributing to this factor that no longer that this needs to be something that we have a standard by. So what is the true failure to progress? We talk about this term failure to progress. Well, when we have a slowing down of labor, this is what we call labor dystocia. And this is the reason why about 25 to 55% of labors result in cesarean. The true diagnosis of Failure to progress is when active labor has an arrest, meaning it has happened during active labor. This would mean that you are either six centimeters or more and your labor has slowed, meaning time between each contraction has become larger, contractions have weakened, or have stopped. This is the medical dictionary term, by the way, of what we mean by an arrest of labor. This also means that after you have had your membranes ruptured, and there has been no progressive adequate contractions between four to six hours, then you can be diagnosed as a true failure to progress case. Other than that, can be debatable and is a case-by-case situation. Also to be considered a failure to progress in second stage of labor is if you haven't had any progress over a three hour or more period of time. And this is the time frame for someone without the epidural. But if you have the epidural, then there is no, if there is no progress over a four hour period of time or more, then that can be considered as a failure to progress during labor. So this means that even if you've had the epidural or not, it's almost like if you have the epidural, they give you more time. But if you have a natural labor, it's almost like shortened. Where to me, I feel like that's if their stance is the epidural doesn't affect labor at all, it should be kind of switched. But if you're trying an all-natural approach, your time, the expected time for you to be able to perform and deliver a baby almost shortens. And to me, that just does not make sense. A failure to progress should also not be considered if there is a failure to wait. And that is our most often issue that it really boils down to. Practitioners are just not willing to wait, not willing to give mom time, or not willing to wait to let the labor process play out, or they are not encouraging 
mom to have movements, to be eating and drinking or changing positions during labor and delivery for her to be able to move the process along a little bit more or a little bit faster. Because a lot of the things that we see when labor does stall sometimes just has to do with us problem solving, us being able to move mom in different positions. Yeah, it could be a little exhausting or can be a little bit more inconvenient and challenging. But if we use these tools and techniques to be able to do that, then maybe it will help speed up the labor at the time frame in which we want it to go. But two, it's almost like they're just not giving moms a chance, even if on the Pitocin. I mean, I remember being on the Pitocin and the doctors coming in and saying, oh, you've only dilated. You know, I showed up to the hospital at five centimeters and then I, you know, got the epidural because I was tired. And even then I was still progressing, but not at the rate that which they wanted. They were coming in every hour to see if I had dilated on the epidural alone. But then when they were like, you're not, you need the Pitocin. I was like, fine. But even then I was dilating at least a centimeter an hour, an hour. But it wasn't until I got about to eight centimeters that they were just like, sorry, you've been in here for too long. This is our last resort. And so it's almost like they just could not wait. And that's the problem. That's part of the problem of failure to progress is because the failure to wait. And studies have shown that the way to prevent labor dissocia is to avoid labor inductions or cervical ripening agents in the early phase of labor and when the cervix is not favorable. So this is what they're saying. If you want to avoid stalling of labor or you want to avoid it not progressing or for it to go ahead and play out the way it needs to play out, we need to either avoid or limit these. So before active phase, active phase, fine. We can probably do some of the things like this. But they encourage first before diagnosis of failure to progress that mom would be on the Pitocin for at least 12 to 18 hours and after there is a rupture of membranes, whether it's augmented or manually artificially done or it's been done on its own because those things can both happen and usually that's why they want to break your waters is because they want to see if that's going to speed up the process. But other things they recommend to avoid labor dissocia is to have a doula, to have movement. Use gravity in the first stage of labor, meaning all the phase that you do this pre-dilation to get you to active labor, this is everything, those things need to be done during this time before you start pushing to get you to that point, is to have that movement and different things like that. And sometimes things tend to slow down labor, like the epidural, stress, or mom's belief in our own capabilities, or people who are in our birth room who don't believe that we can do it the way that we want to do it or intend to do it or even believe in ourselves. There's no, there's a lack of confidence from people who are around us. And this has to do a lot with our sympathetic and our parasympathetic branches in our mind and our makeup. We talked a lot a bit about that when we talked about birth environments or mother and uterine exhaustion. I mean, this happens. We don't necessarily see this happen in a lot of um, multi-moms, meaning moms who have had babies before. We don't see this happening, but we do see it in a lot of first-time moms as well. But even if no matter first, second, third-time mom, exhaustion of the uterine and mother can happen and does happen. I mean, this is why we have a lot of, um, not necessarily a lot of transfers, but this is why a lot of moms transfer from out of home birth 
situations and births is because of exhaustion. And in the second stage, sometimes it's due to not being in the right, baby not being in the right position and mom needs to change positions or the provider needs to assist baby to help maneuver them to that right position. This would include belly palpitating so baby can go ahead and have time or have the space to be able to tuck their chin, all those things. And we understand without a shadow of doubt that during labor, time is precious. And the lack of urgency of time for emergency situations for the sake of mom and baby and the well-being of them is also very important. Because this is not to say that in this is only happening in one particular environment, that this is only happening in the hospital and, you know, curse them. This is, has nothing to do with that because even in home births, we see that time is still something that needs to be considered or births in a birth. We don't normally like to see mom in active labor for long periods of time and to the point where she's exhausted herself or has is in a place of suffering and baby's heart rate is not within a comfortable range. And we are starting to see a little bit of the contraction slowing down because mom and baby are exhausted. This is why transfer happens, those types of things. We don't want mom to cross over into that. Usually the rule is if mom has been in labor for two sunups, then we need to go ahead and start considering other reasons why this is the way that it is. Because it probably is a cord issue or all other measures have been done to speed this along or to help make things progress in a more efficient way where we're not making mom work harder. We're actually making it work smarter and for us and not harder for us. <laughs> you know that term, work smarter, not harder. It's kind of like that you know, taking that into this situation. But the concept of time is not at the forefront of everybody's mind during a home birth. Why? Because they honor the birth process and how it plays out more than in other environments. And if they see some type of progression happening, whether it's a little small dilation, then it's almost like they take that as a win and mom should take that as a win. And sometimes that can go over a period of time. Whereas in certain environments like the hospital, it's often look as birth as more of like a turnover rate. Like you come in, we want you turned over, we don't want you in here for more than 24 hours, or we're not gonna let you go for this period of time. And this has something to do with business. I mean, if you've ever seen the business of being born, you would understand this concept a little bit more clearly, which I would highly recommend that if you have not watched that, definitely recommend that. This is why they recommend the Pitocin though why they mention a possible cesarean and it's because of time the time started the moment you stepped into the hospital and will run the time that clock will run the entire time you were in labor and how they measure time in labor is the rate by which there is dilation and descent of baby so if that takes too much time and you don't beat the clock then sorry we have to look into other options and even then augmentations of labor should not even be recommended or particularly used at such a high rate that they are now during the early stage of labor, but also if contractions are showing progress, even if it is one centimeter every one to two hours. It's just, if this is happening, this should not be even recommended or should not even be a thing as far as we are going to diagnose you with failure to progress. They're just basically saying, you're just taking too long and we just don't have time for this. So 
hey, we're going to do this. And sometimes it has to do with insurance, liability, uh, a fear of being sued for not performing certain procedures. Um, I mean, those types of things. No doctor wants that underneath their belt or hanging over their head. But, and that's all based off of this is how long, time wise, we're going to let this go before we are going to do something about this to avoid lawsuit or to avoid it going any longer for the sake of uh, whatever it may be. And once any medical intervention is introduced in labor, the others will follow. This is what we call the waterfall effect. If you get the Pitocin, you have to have the IV. If you get the epidural, you have to have the heart rate monitors. And thankfully, we have modern technology where a lot of these things can be done wirelessly such as the heart rate monitor and things like that, if we choose to have it. But if you are on the epidural, you have to have that. If you are on the Pitocin, you have to have the IV. And this is often due to time being the ultimate motivating factor. With each medical intervention, you're decreasing your chances of actually having movement and using gravity to help with dilation and descent of baby, which we know helps prevent this failure to progress. And as I've mentioned before, sometimes labor does take time. And sometimes the early phase of labor is often the longest we spend. I mean, I've heard birth stories over and over and over again where a lot of these early phases from zero to five centimeters or zero to four are a really long period of time. But then once they hit the five and then they get over that hump, it's like babies born in like three hours. I mean, it can really speed up. This is why I always say, you know, just because you've spent this amount of time during labor doesn't mean that you're going to spend that much more time during labor. It can essentially speed up. And usually a lot of first-time moms have prodromal labor. I had prodromal labor when I was a first-time mom. And sometimes I have had labor over a serious amount of days and didn't even know it. <laughs> but then Sometimes it comes really quick or from start to finish. I mean, my last birth that I had, I'm coming up to my most recent one or my next one here pretty soon. I remember from start to finish, it was nine hours and I was a third time mom. I mean, that's going from having no contractions to progressing into contractions and then wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, baby's in my arms nine hours later. (laughs) But I will say that just because it's slow in the beginning, or we are seeing little tiny slow progresses in the beginning that are happening over a long period of time. We just need to wait it out. Sometimes we just need to wait it out. If mom and baby are doing fine and doing completely okay, we just need to wait it out. That's what we really need to do. But in some situations, that's not happening. They're not giving moms a chance to do that. And there are a lot of reasons why labor slows down. And it takes more time than what we thought it would. And we talked about cord issue, which happened to my son. Position of baby, a cervical lift that hasn't fully effaced. The epidural has the possibility of slowing down labor. Mom is not in the right position, meaning she's on her back during delivery, which is also not a effective way of pushing. These things have the ability to change the trajectory of time spent in labor. And just because your previous birth resulted in failure to progress doesn't mean it's going to happen again this time around. So if you're sitting here thinking, 
Well, my last birth was like that. So now the doctors are worried that that's is going to, that's why they're suggesting another cesarean, or this is why they are putting more time constraints on me because of the failure to progress. Well, that does not mean it's going to happen this time. Does not mean any of that because every pregnancy is different. Or even if they think, oh, well, the reason why you were slow on your dilation or you didn't have the baby in the amount of time that we want you to or you weren't progressing this amount of time is because the size of your baby. Well, the estimation of baby is a case-by-case situation because ultrasounds can and are known to be off by at least two pounds. And we all know that if we have this movement, we are using positions, even if we're on the epidural, guys, this is also so important. If you get the epidural because you are tired or because you have been laboring over a period of time and you're exhausted or you've had the Pitocin and you realize, geez, this is intense or your water did break early on and things are still progressively they're slow, but there's progress, but it's intense because there's nothing, there's no cushion there, then we do get the epidural, which is fine, which is totally okay. We have it there for those reasons. But the thing is, is even on the epidural, we need to still have movement. And so we know that if there's movement happening, that the pelvis is able to move and shift to create more space to birth this so-called big baby. So those are things that we should not get hung up on if we're heading into birth. And this has been an issue in the past. Those are things that we should not. And so how do we make this time if it's being used in certain environments or even if you're having a home birth? How do we make time work for us and not against us? How do we use that time wisely? How do we take advantage of that? Well, number one is we use movement and gravity, which means we're going to have to get up and get moving. If you can't because you have the epidural, like I said, you still need to be making sure that we are moving mom, getting her side to side, putting pillows in between her legs, getting her into positions where she can help baby descend because baby still needs to get out or get into different positions to help you create space in your pelvis. Uh, We can do movements, use different birth tools that are in our environment, uh, like getting on the toilet. Everybody has a toilet in their house as well as in any birth environment, there's always a toilet. This is why we call the dilation station. And how, like I said, and one thing I want to note here is that I understand that the Friedman curve and how they measure time and birth is based off of dilation and descent of baby. But I will say this, dilation is not the only thing that matters during labor. And I know that I've said this in the past. It is not the only thing that matters. There are lots of other things that baby and your body needs to do in order to be able to have baby come out. And maybe that is a topic that we need to talk about and really hone in on next time, but that is definitely something worth measuring. We should not just be so focused on dilation. Just wanted to remind you of that because there are a lot of other important things happening and time should not just be measured by dilation. It's one of the most important things, but it is not the only thing that is important when it comes to time. And so when we talk about get up and get moving, using these things, these are all things that you learn in my childbirth education class. I teach you how to do these things. And even though it sounds so complicated or it could be so overwhelming, really it is so simple. And I am just, I love teaching people this because it's just so, so important. And so in my childbirth education classes, 
you know how to do all of this. This is something, even if you don't want a natural birth, even if you do want the epidural and the Pitocin and you want all those things, I teach you how to make time be on your side by using movement and all those different positions. So definitely want to see you there. If that's something you're interested in, I want you there too. I definitely am interested in you being there. So number two, limit medical interventions in early labor. So this includes artificial rupture of membranes before eight centimeters. If it happens on its own, then it happens on its own. But one thing I can recommend is that if the provider is wanting to break your water before eight centimeters, consider the risk. This is not only going to act as a cushion for you, but doing it too early puts you at risk for core prolapse, which we talked about in our cesarean series, that you have a higher chance of that happening than having a uterine rupture if you're a VBAC mom. And this is something that they really want happening if you're a VBAC mom, is to break your waters because they think that's going to help before eight centimeters. But in any case, VBAC or not, first time mom or not, it is vaginal birth mom or not. <laughs> Gotta throw that in there real quick. But in any case, it's actually very dangerous and puts your baby at risk. The con or the pro is, is that if you are at eight centimeters and that is the one thing that will help you get over to 10 and get you over into second phase of labor, which is delivery, then sure. But still consider the risk and the benefits, but also as the alternatives. And two, every time that water has broken spontaneously or manually, it's going to make it more intense. Your contractions will be more intense because your cushion is gone. So just know that if this is something you do want, consider that, consider those things, but also that we are going to want to limit medical interventions during the early phase of labor, so zero to four. So this also means you're probably going to want to labor at home as long as possible. Just because you're in labor doesn't mean you need to rush to the hospital. The good rule of thumb is that if you are starting to have contractions, keep track of them. And if they are four minutes apart, one minute long, and have been happening for one hour, so 411, if anybody remembers calling 411 to ask for phone numbers for different businesses, then <laughs> you and I are like on the same track. <laughs> but then you can go to the hospital or call the midwife, okay? Because the less time that they have to give you medical interventions, especially if you don't want them or especially giving them to you unnecessarily early, the better. So laboring as long as you can at home will not give the hospital staff time to give you unnecessary medical interventions and will only benefit your clock time-wise because once you step in there, it starts. So if you've already done majority of the work at home and majority of the time at home and you're going in, your clock is going to be shortened, which means they're probably not going to have, like I said, time to recommend things or things are going to be progressing where you know that if they start recommending stuff that you know to say no because you know that things have already been progressing on their own and you don't need that. So number four, hiring a doula or a montrice. A doula is one of the best supports you can have on your birth team for many reasons. And as long as I have mentioned earlier, it's studies that have shown that having a doula decreases the chances of labor dissocia. This has to do with the continual support, the well-rounded information, the um, ability to help you and your partner and your family make informed decisions, but also to help you with the movements and the positions, those types of things. 
A monitrice is someone who can come and monitor you at home, monitor you and baby at home before going to the hospital. And usually these individuals are midwives, but when they come to you, what they do is they monitor the baby and they kind of check your dilation because they that is their scope of practice. They will do that and they will tell you, okay, you're at this point, based off of the trend, based off the time that you are having these contractions and dilation, this is the time to go. They almost give you like the green light to go <laughs> to the point where it's not too late or to the point where you're not having, you know, your baby on the side of the road or, you know, obviously we can't 100% guarantee that, but they will tell you when a good time is for you to go ahead and go if you so please that that would make you more comfortable laboring at home as long as possible. You could hire somebody to be able to do that and we call those montries. Next is fuel up. Make sure you are hydrating and eating something small to maintain your energy because birth is exhausting. <laughs> that would mean water, make sure you're staying hydrated, um, eating things that are only going to give you the energy that you need for birth because if things do end up going a little bit longer or that's going to give you more of a advantage of not having exhaustion, not becoming super dehydrated, uterine exhaustion, those types of things which have the potential of slowing down labor. So you're going to want to eat high protein. So you're going to want to make sure that you are eating something that is going to give you the energy that you need long term. As we get more into labor, maybe something that's an instant high, kind of like caffeine, so like applesauce, those types of things. But definitely fueling up. That's going to be for your advantage. Because we don't want you to get exhausted. And part of not getting exhausted means that we are fueling up. Because once we start becoming exhausted, our mom starts becoming exhausted, mom's body is actually going to switch in producing adrenaline versus oxytocin. And we don't want that happening. Because if the body starts increasing adrenaline, then this is going to hinder the contractions and dilation it's going to slow that down. We actually don't want adrenaline coming into the picture until about second phase of labor. That is when we want it to switch over. Where oxytocin during the first stage of labor, so the dilation part of labor, we want to also not reduce oxytocin because once we have oxytocin happening because adrenaline has now been kicked over, it's gonna reduce the oxytocin which causes the contractions and dilation. So part of the exhaustion part has to do with us fueling up, hydrating, eating, and drinking, which is perfectly safe during labor. And even if you are going into labor and realize, you know what, I want to eat before I go, totally smart, do that. But make sure it's a high protein meal. Focus on protein before you go into labor. Or as soon as you know that you're in labor, eat something. If you feel that and know that your provider is not going to let you do that, eat something high in protein before you go to the hospital or as soon as you know that you're in labor eat high protein and then maybe on the way eat like a little applesauce or something <laughs> i don't know but definitely focus on making sure that you are fueled up and ready to go because that's going to work in your favor next ask a lot of time from what i hear moms is that if you feel like they were not given a chance or given enough time they felt like they could go a little bit longer or they wish that they would have gotten a little bit more time to be able to problem solve or to be able to do certain things. So if you're in labor and you feel you want that and it's not putting you and your baby in danger, then ask, fight for it. And in my classes, I teach you how to fight for it. 
Listen to your instincts. Listen to what your body needs and what your mom gut is telling you. If you want more time because you feel like you need more time, take the time to do that. Nobody can make that decision for you, only you. So if your provider doesn't want to give you more time, you can ask for more time. You can. And if you change your mind, you can do that. That's all part of your bill of rights as patients is you can do that. And also take your time during pushing. So no purple pushing. This means when they count to 10 and they want you to push the entire time, no matter if you're feeling it or not, don't do that. Listen to your body, only push when your body is telling you to do. All right, mom friend, that is all that I have for you today, especially when it comes to the time that we think of the concept of time during birth. I know time is something that's always pressed upon us. When are we going to have the baby? How much time is it going to be before we go into labor? I mean, time is such a huge thing and it can cause so much pressure and anxiety and can just cause a lot of a lot of different mixed emotions. And so I'm hoping after learning about why this it is what it is, especially during labor, will help you be able to strategize be able to prepare so that you can make time work for you and not against you during birth. With all that, I will see you next time. Bye. Hi again. Thank you so much for listening to this great episode. If you had learned something today, please make sure you leave a review in Apple Podcasts and share with another mom friend. Also, pop on over to our private Facebook group, sign up for our email list, and connect with me on social media, which are all linked in the description of this podcast. I can't wait to see you over there and connect with you. Now go listen to your mom gut because wisdom will guide you and chances are it won't let you down. Until next time, cheers.